Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Amen. Father God, we submit our hearts to your word. We desire to delight in your word, and I pray that you would give me uh, gracious lips and, Father, uh, clear uh, thinking as I seek to give exposition to your word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> One of the perennial topics of interest seems to be the Sabbath, and I have been asked several times to uh, preach on the Sabbath in the last several months, and I noticed only, what, one of the people, <laughs> one of the five or six people that have asked me to preach on it are here. <laughs> That's kind of ironic, but oh well, they can listen to a tape. But there have been people who have been wondering uh, about that. It's totally new to them. They have not really thought through this issue before, and I thought, well, rather than ending in chapter one with day six, I really should go through all seven days of creation and look at the foundation of, um, of the Sabbath. And it really is a distinctive of our church. I think it's appropriate for this to be a part of our foundation series. Now, last week, we looked at the first half of the fourth commandment, didn't we? That we're supposed to take dominion for six days. And so today, we're looking at the day of rest in that creation week. And it was to be a day of blessing. I think we ought not to look at the Sabbath as a day of drudgery that we look forward to. In fact, we're really not celebrating the Sabbath properly if uh, this is a day that uh, we just dread uh, coming. One Puritan called it the market day of the soul. And the analogy he was giving is we can buy without money or without price going to the spiritual grocery store all kinds of neat benefits that the Lord has for us on this day. This is the day he delights to bless us with. Uh, another Puritan spoke of it as the trysting place of the soul. Uh, trysting, that's an old word. It just means a day of romance, okay? This is the day that we can set aside the hustle and the bustle of the week and just spend time with uh, our husband, with our Lord. This is his special trysting day. And so uh, what I want to do, and especially next week, I want to show this is an incredibly positive day and if we've turned it into a negative day like some of the Pharisees did, uh, we're missing out on the genius of what the Sabbath is about. Now today I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not even having an outline. Well, I guess there sort of is an outline. I'm just going to answer some of the questions that people have asked me about the Sabbath because if I've been asked by a dozen people these questions, I'm sure lots of others probably have the same the questions. First question is this. Was the Sabbath a ceremonial law or was it a moral law? And many times people try to phrase the question in that kind of a dilemma. It's one or the other. And either way that you answer, they think that they can nail you. Many times in debate, they, they give that false dilemma. Is it ceremonial or is it moral? If you say it's not moral, they can very quickly point to scriptures that say that it's ceremonial. And uh, if you're not prepared for that, you wonder, okay, how do you deal with the argument that has passed away then? And if you say it's ceremonial then you're, the, the people many times will argue, no, this is a moral law. It's right in the Ten Commandments. And if you say it's ceremonial, then uh, you get in trouble from that side. But I think that Calvin really was on to something when he said it was both. It's both moral and ceremonial. 
and we miss out on some of the genius of what the Sabbath was intended to teach and to reinforce in our lives if we don't look at the ceremonial side. So what I want you to do with I mean, we're going to be flipping around to different scriptures. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 20, and uh, we're going to look at some passages which say that this is a sign. It's a ceremony. It's something that is a pointer. It's pointing to something. It's supposed to teach us something. Ezekiel 20, and look at verse 12. <clears throat> Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths, to be a sign between them and me that I that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them so notice that this is called a sign and I know that some of you who have been here from the beginning the sermon is going to be review uh, but review is not always bad uh, and I think uh, these really are important concepts to nail down it's called clearly a sign it's uh, not just a moral precept it has a symbolic or a s signifying character about it look down there at verse 20 hallow my sabbaths and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that i am the lord your god turn to exodus chapter 31 and this will be the last one there are other passages we could look at to demonstrate its uh, uh, ceremonial aspect but exodus 31 and verse 13 and again, the reason I'm doing this is because some Reformed people are so intent on proving that, that the Sabbath has not passed away that they're reluctant to say that it is a sign and they miss out on some very important aspects of what the Sabbath teaches. Exodus uh, 31 and verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So again, he's calling it a sign. It's like a road sign that's saying, this is the direction you need to be going. This is what you need to be understanding about the future or the past or something else. It, it definitely signifies uh, something. And so that brings up the second question that I frequently hear. If it is a sign... And some people argue very strongly, this is a ceremonial law. If it is a sign, then does that not mean that the Sabbath has completely passed away? And actually, the whole sermon is going to be dealing with this concept that the Sabbath has not passed away. But on this point, I just want to deal with the everlasting nature of even the sign aspect, the ceremonial aspect of, um, of, of this fourth commandment. Uh, before you jump to the conclusion that passes away, I want you to look at a few scriptures. Turn with me to Genesis 9, and I want to show you that there are four signs in the Old Testament, all of which were pointing to something that were said to be everlasting. And the first one is the rainbow in chapter 9 of Genesis. And look at verses 12 through 13. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, two things to notice. First of all, it's called a sign, and that this sign is going to be for perpetual generations. In fact, uh, a little bit later on, yeah, verse 16, he calls it the everlasting covenant. This is not a covenant that's going to pass away. As he words it elsewhere, as long as there is seed time and harvest, as long as there are seasons, as long as there is an earth, this is going to be something that's going to be assigned to you. 
And it really is a sign that we ought not to ignore. When you've just finished having a rainstorm and you see a rainbow, immediately that rainbow ought to trigger a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his common grace that he has decided he is never going to again destroy all mankind with a universal flood. And he speaks of other things and that covenant and that, that, that rainbow is a sign that continues perpetually to be a reminder to us. It's a very important one as well. Now, a second sign, and most people agree with this, so I won't delve into it very much, is the Passover meal. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what was he partaking of? Partaking of Passover meal, right? And later on in the New Testament, he speaks of the Lord's table as being not just the Passover, but uh, some of the other uh, sacramental meals in the Old Testament as well. But the Passover was said to be perpetual. In Exodus 12, it says it's forever for all generations, that they were supposed to engage in that sign. Now, there were changes to the sign because no longer can there be bloodletting because the one bloodletting in Jesus Christ has been finished. There are changes, but the essence of what that meal signified continues to come into the Lord's table. And essentially, this is a ceremonial law. When we come to the Lord's table, it's a ceremony. And so not all ceremonial law has been abolished in the Old Testament. In Hebrews, dealing with the ceremonial law, he says, since there is a new priesthood, of necessity, there must be a change of the law. He didn't say an abrogation of the law. He said a change in the law. And the law has been rather significantly changed. Moral law never changes. Ceremonial law, there has been a change that has come about. Okay, the third sign, and this is old hat for you, so I won't delve into that, but was circumcision baptism in the Old Testament. Baptism is a ceremonial law. And so all ceremonial laws were not done away with. Now, just as the other three signs were said to be everlasting and they come into the New Testament and there's been a change that has happened to them, the same has been true of, <coughs> of the Lord's Day, of the Sabbath. And I want you to look at Exodus 31:16 again. And uh, we'll see that here. It says, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever okay so it's not just a sign but as a sign it is forever it's not just the moral side of the lord's table and i think calvin missed out on this dimension he saw both moral and ceremonial he says the, the ceremonial has passed away that's not true the ceremonial has changed but it is not passed away because the ceremonial the sign aspect is forever it lasts throughout all generations and again down in verse 17 he says it is a sign Oh, yeah, I just read that uh, between me and the children of Israel forever for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth on the seventh day. He rested and was refreshed. He's saying, why would you think it was passed away when Israel's passed away? This way preceded uh, even the formation of Israel. Now, a third question that frequently comes with regard to the Sabbath is this. Is the Sabbath only for the Jews? And I've already given away the answer just by reading that last uh, verse there. They say, I understand that it's perpetual, but it should be perpetual just for Israel. This is not something that the Gentiles should partake of. This is something that signified a separation, a distinction of Israel from all of the other nations. And therefore, yeah, it's okay for Messianic Jews to partake in the Sabbath, but not for us. And I want to deal with that question because I think that is not true. First of all, um, now let me give a twofold answer and you may not buy into the first part but let me give it anyway and then we'll give the second part which i think is a lot clearer first of all if we aren't the israel of god what in the world were we grafted into in romans chapter 11 
read the read the parable of that olive tree it's clear we have been grafted into israel you know in the old testament there were gentiles grafted into israel as well read in esther it says many of the gentiles became jews and you can find throughout the old testament uh, period uh, hittites and various people who became part of israel so we were grafted into that and let me read you from ephesians 2 it says that we were once aliens from the commonwealth of israel and strangers from the covenants of promise but now in christ jesus you who once were afar off have been brought near brought near to what to the commonwealth of israel he goes on he says now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens okay so we're in the commonwealth of israel we're not foreigners we're not gentiles anymore we are israelites we are we're jews just like the gentiles became jews in esther we have become jews in the new testament and he says we are fellow citizens with the jews one of uh, the books that i have found extremely helpful and i i've written some papers in the past on this but i think provan does a better job so i've quit handing out my paper and i've recommended his book uh, but it's the book called the church is israel now and uh, he points out all kinds of passages like in isaiah where it says that God would raise up, in the time of the New Covenant, he would raise up Levites from among the Gentiles. You say, well, it's an oxymoron. A Levite has to be from the tribe of Levi, right? But that's a passage, by the way. Read, read some of the Orthodox Jewish commentaries in there. They're just totally mystified by that verse. How in the world could there be Levites from among, among the Gentiles? But that's what pastors are. And it, uh, it speaks of, of uh, gentiles coming into israel and in prophecy and the new testament speaks of us as being the israel of god and uh, anyway get provan's book and you will see a ton a boatload of scriptures proving that we are part of the true israel of god it was not all of israel that was broken off was it there was a remnant of israel that remained and we as as gentiles were grafted in it was unbelieving branches that were grafted out but not all the branches of israel were broken off and so um, there is one temple, one bride, one vine, one olive tree. It's not two peoples of God. Now, you may not buy that, but let's give some scriptures that I think are extremely straightforward of how the Sabbath applies to Gentiles. And it doesn't just apply to believing Gentiles. If it's a moral law, it has to apply to unbelievers as well. Now, some people say, okay, it's a moral law, but it only applies to believers. No, absolutely not right. It applies to unbelievers as well. There's many scriptures that indicate this. For example, in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, imposes the Sabbath upon unbelievers from Tyre who are trying to sell their wares. And he says, look, if you don't stop this, you're going to be put in prison. You know, He imposes the Sabbath. They had blue laws that he was imposing back then, but it was upon unbelievers. These guys didn't even know uh, the Lord. Now, since we're dealing with Genesis, just think about it this way. If the Sabbath started in Genesis chapter 2, then it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to say that the Sabbath only belongs to the nation of Israel. And that is Christ's interpretation of Genesis 2 in Mark 2, verse 17, where he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's Mark 2, verse 17. That's the generic word for mankind. Okay, he says... When God made mankind, Adam and Eve, he didn't make mankind for the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath to benefit mankind, not vice versa. And so he's saying, don't get legalistic, okay? Uh, the, the, the purpose of the Sabbath was for, to benefit man, not to hinder and to harm man. 
Well, let's see if other scriptures support this conclusion. If you turn with me to Exodus 20, you'll see the very way in which the, <coughs> the fourth commandment is worded includes uh, people who weren't even part of the commonwealth of Israel, who were not in the covenant, who were not Jews. They were strangers. Uh, look at Exodus 20, and let's see. Let's, let's begin at verse 10. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant. We're not told whether those are Jewish servants or Gentile servants, but he gets broader here. He says, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. And you might think, well, why in the world would he include strangers in this commandment? What do they have to do with the covenant? Well, he goes on in the very next verse to exp explain why it applies to Gentiles. This is a moral law. It's not just a ceremonial law. Ceremonies alone would not apply universally, you know, to everybody uh, necessarily, but the moral laws do. He goes on in verse 7, he says, For, here's the reason, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's why it applies to Gentiles. It was not made for Israel, it was made for mankind. Okay? So clear, clear reference, I think, to the fact that, <coughs> that Gentiles uh, were included. If you want to write down some other verses, <coughs> Deuteronomy 5.14, Numbers 15, Nehemiah 13. Uh, let me go ahead and read a couple of these. Isaiah 66. In fact, you can turn there if you want. <coughs> Isaiah 66 and verse 23. Now, this is a prophecy. Both of these Isaiah passages are prophecies of the new covenant, what's going to happen after Christ is raised from the dead <clears throat> and it says it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one sabbath to another all flesh shall come to worship before me says the lord now have new moons ceased no we continue to measure time by new moons and quarter moons and half moons and some societies that's the only measure of time is uh, the monthly lunar cycle and so basically what he is saying is from month to month and from sabbath to sabbath all flesh is going to worship me and so all flesh is a reference not just to Jews, but also to the Gentiles who are going to be governing their time, not just by moons, but governing their time by Sabbath days as well. Now let me give you one other one. If you turn with me to Isaiah 56, and the whole chapter speaks of God's salvation coming to the Gentiles in our, uh, our own day. But notice in verse 3 that he speaks of the son of the foreigner, the son of the foreigner. And then look at verses 7 through, well, let's start at verse 6, 6 through 7. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations okay again it's very clear that the sabbath applies to uh, to all nations <clears throat> and when the gentiles lay hold of it it makes them joyful he says so, so so far we've answered the question is it a sign or is it a moral law we say it's both second has the sign passed away and the answer is biblically no even the sign aspect is everlasting to the question, was it only for the Jews? We saw, no, the, 
the only possible answer we can give to it is even in the way it's worded in the in the fourth commandment it was intended for gentiles the fourth question that's often puzzled people is why is the sabbath treated as such a big deal uh, some people really are mystified by this because it just seems that it, you know what difference does it make if i go out and shop on sunday i mean i just don't understand why this is such a big deal in in the scripture and if you turn back to exodus 31 um, we'll see how god explains why this is such a big deal <clears throat> and actually i think i'll i'll read the verse right before it that shows how big of a deal uh, god made it to be uh, beginning at verse 15 he says work shall be done for six days but the seventh is the sabbath of rest holy to the lord whoever does any work on the sabbath day he shall surely be put to death say, whoa this is pretty serious now even if you believe that colossians has done away like uh, gary north does that colossians has done away with the judgment aspect it's no longer under the judgment of the church no longer under the judgment of the state and i think there is some uh, some merit to that argument you still have to agree god treats sabbath observance extremely seriously if he put the death penalty on failure to observe the sabbath this is not just some ceremonial law or something that maybe uh has temporary significance god says no this is of the utmost importance and i want you to take it uh seriously but he goes on and he says why it is he wants them to take it seriously therefore the children of israel shall keep the sabbath to observe the sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant it is the sign okay but notice he calls it not just the sign he says it is the covenant and there's other scriptures that say the sabbath is the covenant it sums up what the covenant is all about and so to despise the sabbath according to god is to despise the covenant itself the whole covenant can be summed up in understanding what the sabbath is about between dominion and rest you cover everything that man does six days you take dominion one day you rest i mean that's your whole work week right or your whole week i shouldn't say work week it covers everything that man does in the fourth commandment now we're going to be seeing a little bit later on how it's possible for god to curse the sabbath and i think that the sabbath was cursed and you might think whoa what in the world is going on there it's blessed and it's cursed both and we'll see the significance of that but uh, what i want to do here is i want to demonstrate in terms of its moral character that it is a moral law as well that it not only sums up the covenant it is not only called the covenant not only is it the sign of the covenant but it sums up all of the moral law and i want to go through the ten commandments and quickly demonstrate that but if you want uh, further proof of this um, read francis nigel lee's book you can download it off the web on the ten commandments his book on the Ten Commandments goes um, through that and demonstrates it. The first commandment deals with the sanctity of God. And to fail to take dominion and rest as God prescribed means we're taking authority to ourselves. Uh, so it breaks the first commandment. And it breaks it in other ways as well. It breaks it by failing to trust God. Let me tell you something. Really honoring the Sabbath is a trust issue. It is hard to say, can I dare not to work? You know, I need the money or I need this and that. It's a trust issue with your time. Am I going to trust the Lord to take care of me uh, with regard to uh, Sabbath observance? Um, 
it's also the day by me which we can grow to know him and grow in sanctification now we can't just be sanctified any way that we choose because he chooses how to sanctify us and he chooses to do it through the sabbath ezekiel 20 verse 16 moreover i also gave them my sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that okay here's the purpose for giving the sabbath that they might know that i am the lord who sanctifies them that they might know that i am the lord the sabbath clearly ties in with the first commandment and i think it's essential to fully keeping that command it's a big deal so we don't have the authority to dismiss god's authority over our week uh, or we're breaking the first commandment the second commandment deals with the sanctity of worship and basically the second commandment says look you can't claim to worship me just any old way that you choose you need to worship me as i have dictated it's basically the regulative principle of worship but God has regulated the Sabbath, and when we fail to keep the Sabbath as God has dictated that we keep the Sabbath, we're breaking the second commandment. So another reason why it's a big deal. What about the third commandment? In what way is failure to honor the Sabbath a dishonoring of his name? And I would say it's because God has caused his name to rest with the Sabbath. He has identified his name. Isaiah 56, verse 6, says that Gentile believers who love the name of the Lord will keep from defiling the sabbath he puts them in parallel he defines the one group by the second phrase he says it defines those who quote love the name of the lord unquote as being quote everyone who keeps from defiling the sabbath and so it's tied in explicitly with his name another way in which his name is defiled or where it's lifted up is his name is honored is when gentiles look on and they see that we are trusting god enough to take one day off as he has commanded and that God still prospers us and still blesses us. You know, everybody else, all the other farmers, they're off harvesting their crops and you're, you're resting. And they're saying, what a fool. And God still blesses us. What it does is it honors God's name and exalts his name before the heathen in a very tangible way. On the other hand, we, we dishonor his name when we fail to trust him and fail to uh, uh, follow, uh, follow him in, in the Sabbath. The goal of history is given in Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 23, where God says, So shall your descendants and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. That's how God's name will remain <laughs> on his people. It's by Sabbath keeping. Uh, honoring his name cannot be separated from honoring his day. It's just basically think of his day as having his name this day belongs to jehovah it's got his name written all over it fourth commandment a lot of people think of the fourth commandment as only being the the commandment relative to the sabbath but it's not it's a commandment to take dominion for six days and so if you ditch the fourth commandment you've ditched our dominion you've ditched almost all of life okay so it really does impact a lot more than what most people realize uh the fifth commandment is the sanctity of authority honor your father and your mother and malachi chapter one applies that commandment to god and he says when you fail to honor my laws you're failing to honor me as your father and he, he he appeals to this commandment so god ultimately is the father and where we're failing to honor the the sabbath we're failing to honor <coughs> um, god as father isaiah 58 says we honor god when we honor the sabbath matthew 12 8 says christ of christ the son of man is lord even of the sabbath so what do we need to ask am i being lord of the day or am i giving god lordship of the day how we handle it will answer that question 
Leviticus 19.3 even connects our attitudes to parents with our attitude to the Sabbath. It says, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. And so I would say, yeah, it's such a big deal because it's tying in with all of these commandments. The sixth commandment deals with the sanctity of life. And it's worded, thou shalt not kill, you know, thou shalt not murder. And so in what way would that tie in with the, uh, the Lord's Day? Well, if you think about it, it very clearly does because uh, read the larger catechism and it gives all kinds of scriptures that amplify that. Or read through Deuteronomy, which amplifies over a, about a couple chapters that commandment. And you'll see it not only commands us not to take life, but it commands us to promote the health and the well-being and the life of other people, to do whatever we can to promote it. Well, looked at from that perspective, the Sabbath definitely does promote the health and the life of people. Uh, Even the the health and the life of your animals, uh, it promotes. And so I think it ties in very clearly with the the Sixth Commandment. Moving to the Seventh, which deals with the sanctity of marriage. I'm not going to take time to go over that, but let me use an illustration. If I were to take this, this wedding ring, I were to take it off and throw it on the muddy ground and grind my feet into it and stamp on it, that would be a very visible demonstration of my hatred for my marriage covenant. Well, the Sabbath is the sign. Think of it like a ring. It's the sign of God's everlasting covenant. And if you read Ezekiel 20, you'll see that he not only says despising the Sabbath is a despising of his covenant, but he goes on to say it is committing of spiritual adultery. Read it, Ezekiel chapter 20. And so he ties it in with the seventh commandment as well. Okay, the eighth commandment is the sanctity of property. That's pretty obvious. If if this is his day, to fail to honor him with it is to steal from him, is to take his property. Ninth commandment deals with the sanctity of truth. If the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant and our pledge of faithfulness to God, every time we break it, we are lying about our pledge, aren't we? We're we're failing to... to, uh, uh, honor, uh, honor our word. The tenth commandment deals with the sanctity of contentment and our desires. Uh, the Sabbath, I think, is a true test of where our contentment lies uh, and where our hungers lie. Do we hunger for God or are we so discontented with the amount of dominion that God has enabled us to take on six days that we covet more? We envy. We covet for uh, more than what God has enabled. And so an answer to the question of why God treats the Sabbath as being so all-fired important is that it is important. It sums up the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. uh, And it sums up all of the moral law of God. Now, the fifth question is this. Is the Sabbath simply a long list of don'ts? And uh, my answer is obviously no. In fact, I think we miss the genius of the Sabbath if we focus on all of the don'ts and forget what those things free us up to do. They're freeing us up to focus on God and to enjoy Him and to delight ourselves in Him. And next week, we're going to see how positive the... Next week's going to be an incredibly positive sermon, okay? Balance out today's sermon. Incredibly positive sermon on on why this Sabbath is such a, a great tool for worshiping and serving and growing in Him. But why don't you turn with me to Isaiah... 58 and i'm going to read verses 13 through 14 and just show that it it's really an answer to legalism god does does give some don'ts in the bible and those don'ts are important but he does not give us an exhaustive list of don'ts and i think there's a good reason he he knows our legalistic hearts that if we get an exhaustive list 
then we're going to feel we've satisfied the dimensions of the Sabbath if we just have abstained from certain things. But the Sabbath is not about abstaining. You know, if all we have done when we are committing ourselves to our wives is we abstain from all other ladies, but we never commit ourselves to our wives, boy, we would think that would be rather imbalanced, wouldn't we? And so I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 58, and let's see here, verses 13 through 14. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, now a lot of people are confused by that. What in the world does it mean, turning away your foot? Remember last week we saw that the foot was the symbol of dominion? Um, whether it's putting a shoe over a piece of land, uh, Christ casting his shoe over Edom or Moab, I never did look it up after the last sermon, or when they would conquer a king, they would put their foot on that king's neck. They were declaring, I'm now ruling over you and over your territory. I'm declaring dominion. So he's saying here, turn aside your foot from the Sabbath. In other words, turn aside your dominion from the Sabbath. And then he says, here's another thing that you need to be careful to uh, do. Where am I? Verse 13. From doing your pleasure on my holy day. Now, he's not saying don't make the, the Sabbath pleasurable. That's what some of the Puritans did. And boy, was it a drudgerous day. But he's saying, turn aside from your pleasure. Now, you're going to be freed up to find pleasure in God. And so he says in the next phrase, and call the Sabbath a delight. God wants us to delight in him the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Now, there's a bunch of don'ts. But the sentence isn't finished yet. The reason for the don'ts is to help us focus. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, I am committed to this. And I am going to so guarantee this that my integrity is going to be at stake. If you don't delight in the Lord when you keep the Sabbath properly, if you don't ride on the high places of the earth, if you don't enter into the blessings, then God's saying, I'm a liar. That's how strongly God is wording that. Now, if we find the Sabbath to be dry and dusty and boring, we are keeping the Sabbath wrong. We're being legalistic about the way in which we're, we are approaching the Sabbath. And next week, I want to uh, probably deal with that um, uh, a a, a little bit more. So when people ask me, can I do such and such on the Sabbath? I like to deflect the question and ask, well, is that the best way to honor God and to focus on him and upon his people? Because the moment I say, yeah, yeah, that's wrong, they're going to start arguing with me, (laughs) right? And there could be legitimate differences of opinion on some of these things. I got myself into trouble uh, at the beginning of this by you know, giving a bunch of answers to don'ts that weren't in the Bible. And so what I will try to deflect people to is I say, just think through your day, and it may change from year to year, but what are some of the creative ways in which you can make this day to be a delightful day, a day your kids look forward to, and a day in which you are spending time with me, focusing upon me and upon my covenant people. If you can do that, you're going to avoid the legalism. And some people say, well, I noticed that you don't get the paper on Sunday. Should I not get the paper on Sunday? I say, well, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. We've just chosen not to make that as our priority because there's a whole bunch of other priorities that we feel are more effective in sanctifying our day to the Lord. But I've known some people that read through the paper and use it as a prayer exercise. Man, what a pile of prayer requests come in the newspaper every day, right? 
And by the way, every day of the week, you ought to, when you read the paper, pray it to the Lord. So again, we're trying to avoid legalism, but at the same time, defining what the borders are that the Lord has given. Ezekiel 20, twice, says that the Sabbath day is a day to know the Lord. That's his purpose. It's focused. Now let me give you one more background question, then we're done. And I'm going to try to finish off the material then next week on on uh, uh, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's the sixth question. If it is a sign, what is a sign of? When God blessed the Sabbath day in Genesis 2, what it did it, is that it symbolized a completion of God's creative work and of his dominion. I mean, he took dominion in making that garden, and Adam was watching the whole time because he was made before the garden was made. And so God was showing him how to take dominion. He was teaching him. And so it was looking back on a, on a finished work of creation that was complete. No sin yet, so he's not looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think people who apply that in Genesis 2, I think they've misinterpreted that. There has been a change. So God's week ended in a Sabbath ceasing from dominion, but Adam and Eve's week begins with a Sabbath rest. Now you can see, no you can't see, because I didn't put it on there, but there really should be an ellipsis on day six, because Adam was actually created halfway through day six. Uh, he did not experience the evening, he did not experience the morning, and God did not define the days here as evening to evening, he defined them the evening and the morning were the first day, second day, etc., and so sometime during that day, during the daylight uh, period, God makes Adam. And it's not until the end of day six that he creates Eve. And he instructs them, he prepares them, he ushers them then immediately into the Sabbath. And so the first evening-morning sequence that Adam and Eve were able to experience was their first full day was God's Sabbath day, God's seventh day. Does that make sense? So what they're doing is before they go out and take dominion of the earth, they are looking at the Lord, they're gaining insight from him, they're resting in his finished work of creation, and then based on what they have learned from the Lord, they go out and they take dominion. Okay, that was the purpose. It was supposed to be pointing back to the Lord. So God creates a home, Eden, creates a community, Adam and Eve, and he creates them for worship. Um, in Genesis 3 we have the fall. God curses both the dominion and he curses the rest of man, but he graciously also mixes with that curse a promise of blessing. Now what God could have done is he could have just wiped out Adam and Eve and said, you're never going to have rest again. You're going to be tormented for all of eternity in hell, and there won't be a Sabbath day for you. There is no rest for you. There is no rest for the wicked. But instead of doing that, what God does on that bottom line there is he puts the Sabbath at the end of the days. And all of the references to the Sabbath after Genesis chapter 2 in the book of Genesis are the Hebrew phrase at the end of the days. It's a reference to the end of the week when they would um, take part in the Sabbath. And so it's both a curse and it's a blessing. Why is it a curse? Well, let me first of all point out Colossians 2 says that the Sabbath is a commandment that was against us. So it's got to be a curse in some way if it's a commandment that was against us. Actually, the whole law is a curse, isn't it? The, uh, the, the law was against us. Why? Because we can't keep it in ourselves. And so if you try to keep the, the Sabbath commandment 
without looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in effect declaring, I can keep God's law, which the Sabbath summarizes, without looking to Jesus, who is my rest. So that is why it is so important that we in the New Covenant not keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. What, what was happening after the fall, Adam and Eve had to look forward to the only person who would enable them to have true rest, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's salvific in its nature. It's like a road sign. It's every week they are forced to think about the fact not only have they lost their rest that they had in the Garden of Eden, and so it's a reminder of that, but it's also a reminder God hasn't let them down. There will be a rest, but it's going to be off in the future. Now, once Christ comes, he changes that. Because now Christ has made all things new and Christ is reverting things back to a first-day Sabbath. And so I should have had a, 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 another line on that where it's uh, reverted uh, back. Now, the Old Testament anticipated this change, but because it's still looking forward to that change, it calls it the eighth-day Sabbath. And you can see it in the, some of the ceremonial laws. What is the eighth day of the week? Same as the first day of the week, right? It's just looking at it from a different vantage point. In the Old Testament, consistently, that change that's going to happen in the New Testament is spoken of as the eighth-day Sabbath. In the New Testament, we speak of it as a first-day Sabbath. And I've got a book on the Sabbath. I'm not going to even deal with any of those issues, and I haven't uh, in this sermon, except for this one. I want to uh, just give you a synopsis. If you turn with me to Mark 16, I want to show you very briefly how Christ changed the Sabbath from being a seventh-day Sabbath back to being the beginning of our week where we rest in Christ's finished work of redemption and based on what we have learned from him we go out into our work week and we take dominion uh, strengthened by his grace okay <clears throat> mark chapter 16 and uh, verse 1 now when the Sabbath was passed Mary Magdalene Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day Sabbath, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, my version doesn't say first day Sabbath. Uh, if you take literal um, interlinears, uh, you'll see first day Sabbath. Or if you look at Young's literal uh, translation, there's a number that you can see. But the word for Sabbath that's used in verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, and it's definitively passed. It's not just passed in terms of it's going to come around again. When the Sabbath was passed on the first day Sabbath, it's exactly the same word that is used there. The Greek has a perfectly good word for week if he wanted to say first day of the week, and it's hebdomon. He doesn't do that. He uses the word sabbaton. And a rule of interpretation is that when the same word in the same context is used in the same way, it ought to be translated the same way. And so this really should not be the first day of the week, even though it is the first day of the week. I mean, it's a legitimate translation in that sense. But literally, it is the first day Sabbath. Now, what is so significant about this? Every gospel account ends its account by saying, one Sabbath has definitively passed, another first day Sabbath has begun. What is so significant about this is that Nisan 16, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, was never, ever called a Sabbath in the whole history of Judaism. It's never been. So this is something brand new. That's one of the reasons why translators translate it first day of the week. It's like, it really couldn't be a first day Sabbath because the, 
the festival of first fruits was actually a work day. It wasn't a Sabbath day. They threshed out the, the grain in, in the temple, you know, and offered it up, up, up to the Lord. In fact, the women who bring their spices, they deliberately didn't bring their spices on the Sabbath because that was not allowed. They're not aware of this change, so they're, they're bringing spices here. It was not a Sabbath up until this point. And uh, 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 Psalm 118, there's many passages that anticipate this. Speaking of the resurrection, after he's talking about the crucifixion and the torments of Christ, it speaks of the resurrection. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. He's talking about resurrection day. How is it a day that's made? Well, it's a new Sabbath day that the Lord has given. That's why Hebrews 4, and I think it's verse 9 or something like that, says there remains, therefore, a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Sabbatismoi. Uh, it's a, a Sabbath keeping uh, for the people of God. So it's not by our authority, it's not by man's authority that Sunday is called a first-day Sabbath. It's biblical authority itself. Now, I'm not going to trace this all through the New Testament. You can look through Acts every single time. Previous to this, that word has never been used. But after the resurrection of Christ, every single time that um, Sunday is referred to, it's referred to as a first-day Sabbath. Every single time. And you can see it in Acts. In fact, in Acts, there's one passage where it says, Paul preached to the Jews in their synagogue. This was evangelism on their Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath in between, he preached in the church. Well, what's the Sabbath in between their Sabbath days? You know, I believe it's Sunday. Uh, so anyway, let me, let me give you one more passage and then we'll quit. 1 Corinthians 16. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 16 and verses... Uh, one through two Paul is giving instructions here for offerings in the public church gatherings And I want you to notice when they take place He says now concerning the collections for the saints as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia So you must do also on the first day Sabbath and you can look it up in the Greek. It's clearly the word uh, Sabaton there on the first day Sabbath let each of you lay something aside. Now, I want you to notice three things about this passage. First of all, Sunday is called a Sabbath. Second, three times the saints are commanded to observe the Sabbath. Uh, first two times are in verse 1. He says, as I have given orders. Orders are not suggestions. Okay? Orders are law. He's saying, this is law I'm giving here. Uh, this is something you have to follow. You can't just worship on any day that you want. You have to worship on the first day Sabbath. The second time is the last phrase of verse 1. Paul says, so you must do also. For the Sunday being the Sabbath. And we say, well, there's three mandates right there in 1 Corinthians. I've given orders to you. You must do it. And the third time is in verse 2. He uses the imperative tense in the Greek. Let each one of you lay something aside. And so the imperative tense, that's the tense given for commands. And so there's a command for Sunday worship. And uh, first thing I've had you notice is Sunday is called a Sabbath. Second thing is that the Sunday Sabbath is an observance. It's commanded three times. The third thing I want you to notice, it's not just a quirk in, in Corinth. He says, church is plural. And second, he's just finished telling the Galatians that they had to do this. He says, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. And uh, I think I'd like to 
devote one more Sunday to the subject of the Sabbath, but let me sum up right now by recapping what we have shown from the Scripture. First of all, we've seen the Sabbath is a sign, and as such, is more than just a moral law. And next week, we're going to get into some of the incredible teaching that Adam and Eve would have had. It's a sign, wonderful sign. Second, we saw that the Sabbath is perpetual as both moral law as well as ceremonial law. The only change that was made in the Sabbath, and I'll maybe deal with that a bit more next week, the only change that was made with regard to the Sabbath is which direction on the pole is the sign pointing. Is the sign pointing back? Is the sign pointing forward? That's the only change that was made in the ceremonial law. Otherwise, it continues to, uh, uh, it continues to teach us. Okay, um, and I, I should also add there that unless the Old and the New Testaments had explicitly changed the day in which we worship, I'd be worshiping on Saturday right now because it is an everlasting commandment. It's not something that ever passes away. But I would be violating the new covenant spirit to worship it on Saturday because that is a testimony every Sunday that Jesus the Messiah has not come. It's a blasphemy, as it were, because it's saying this sign has never been fulfilled. No, the sign was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now we worship it with the sign pointing backward, looking to his finished work of redemption. Third, we saw that the Sabbath was not just intended for the Jews. It was made for mankind. Gentiles are not only commanded to keep it, but they, it, it prophesies they will be keeping it in the new covenant. Fourth, we saw that the Sabbath is treated as incredibly important to God because it's the sign of the covenant, represents the covenant, summarizes the law, points to God, sanctifies it. He says if we despise the Sabbath, we despise him. And so it's no wonder he treats it seriously. Fifth, we saw that the Sabbath is not simply a list of don'ts. The reason for the don'ts is to help us focus on him. And then seventh, Nope, sixth, it's a sign that Jesus has completed something. We're to rest in his finished work of redemption. Seventh, we saw that the Sabbath must be celebrated on Sunday and on Sunday alone. We don't want to imply that Christ is not coming back. And so my exhortation to you is to study the Sabbath. It really is a wonderful doctrine and a very practical doctrine, and I would encourage you to understand more about it. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it does give us clear guidance as to how our lives should be governed. Help us to rejoice in your Sabbath. Help us to make it our delight. Help us, Father, not to find the legalistic uh, uh, dustiness of Phariseeism that robbed the, the joy and the enthusiasm and the life out of the Sabbath, but instead that we would uh, focus upon you and enter into the enjoyment that you intended us to have on this day. And Father, I pray that you would bless this people on this day that you have blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.